Well, good evening, everybody. As we say in uh, my family, Christos Anesti. Yes, that means Christ is risen in Greek, and you're supposed to say Alithos Anesti. You ready? So when I say Christos Anesti, you say Alithos Anesti. You ready? Christos Anesti. That means truly he is risen. Hey, very good. Although, really, the Greek Orthodox Church isn't celebrating Easter until May 5th. There's a lot of reasons for that. One, because they are the one true church. Um, the other reason is that you get great deals on Easter candy when you wait till after the Americans have got... Yeah, so that's... Uh, Oh, trust me, that was a fact never lost on my mother, ever. So it's Easter. Uh, the Super Bowl of church holidays, just so you know. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. This is like Super Bowl week, right? So uh, in Greek, they call it big week. <laughs> just It's big week, right? Holy week is just big week because uh, you've got all these... Festivals and uh, memorials leading up to the commemoration of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And um, I got to say that even though in the United States of America, by outward appearances, it would look like Christmas is the big deal, right? Because we spend more money around Christmas and we do more things around Christmas. Actually, without Easter, you know, Christmas just doesn't happen, right? It is the central tenet of the Christian faith. What just happened? Um, so, why would I say that? I would say that because without a risen Christ, we're not celebrating the birth. He's just another guy who died said some good things, and then died. C.S. Lewis had a quote that I actually put up on my Facebook page. I thought it was tremendously insightful, and it goes like this. It's from God in the Dock Essays. One must keep pointing out. One must keep pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance the one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. If it's false, it's of no importance whatsoever. But the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus died mid-afternoon on a Friday back in the ancient Near East. The Sabbath was approaching, the Sabbath, which is when all good Jews stop working. This meant that they could not bury Jesus' body on Saturday or even on Friday night. So this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee, sticks his neck out by going to the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, and asks for the body. Now, it's a very dangerous thing to 
align yourself with a criminal that the state just got done executing. But he did that, along with another prominent Pharisee, Nicodemus. And those two guys came with linens and spices weighing 70 pounds or so to wrap up the body very, very quickly and stick it into a tomb before the Sabbath fell. Now, Mark, the Gospel of Mark reports that Pilate was surprised that these guys came and asked for the body because it had only been about six hours since Jesus was on the cross. And it was kind of quick for someone to die a crucifixion because unbeknownst to most people, you don't die of blood loss in crucifixion. You die of suffocation. After a while, because of the way your body is situated, you cannot expand your diaphragm over and over and over again to draw in a breath. It said prisoners would actually, they would actually press on the one nail through both of their feet to push them up so they could catch a breath. So very often, if a guy was hanging on, the Roman guards would come and they would take a big old stick or an iron bar and they would whack him across the legs and break his legs so he could no longer lift up to get a breath and thus death would come more quickly. But the old prophecies said, that the Messiah would not have a bone broken. And Jesus died before they had to break his legs. They did break the legs of the two thieves on either side of him. So, summoning the centurion, Pilate says, go check and see if Jesus is really dead. So the centurion, this kind of war-hardened Roman soldier goes and he takes a long spear and sticks Jesus through the heart to make sure that he's really dead. And so blood and water flow out. Some separation had been going on, right, inside of his thoracic cavity. And so the Roman soldier, who knew what it was to witness death, came back and reported, definitely, yes, he is dead. And so Joseph and Nicodemus take him down from the cross, hastily prepare him for burial, and take him to a tomb, one of Joseph's own tombs. Now, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were following along at a distance to find out where Jesus was being laid, because the truth is they didn't know where he was going, where they were taking the body. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were not part of their regular entourage. They weren't friends. Now, why do I go into all this detail? It's because I want you to understand that the writer of the Gospel of Mark wants us to know that Jesus is dead. You have lots of people certifying that he is dead in a culture that sees death on a regular basis. It's not like here in the U.S. where death is tucked away in some ICU in a corner of the hospital that you can't get into. 
Death happens in your home. Death happens in the street. Death happens all around, and you've got to take care of it. They know what death looks like. So multiple experts and witnesses prove that Jesus is really dead. You know the rest of the story. If you haven't read the book, maybe you've seen the movie. But we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. should be right up there. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now we're going to skip to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. On to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. If I had to sum up what the Apostle Paul was saying in the first part of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, as one staff member put it, the truth is true. This is what happened. Lots of people saw it. Not just me, not just the 12, not just the ladies, but like 500 people saw this guy alive. This is a culture that knows death, and they saw him alive, so they know something had happened. And what I want to say is, if the resurrection is the center of our faith, then it is the most important event, and we should have some good reasons for believing that it's the truth. Because if it's not the truth, we're stupid. All right, seven reasons. Why you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Number one, Jesus himself said 
that he would resurrect from the dead. Jesus himself said it. He predicted it over and over again. All four Gospels. Matthew 8.31, this is Jesus. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You can't get much more plain than that. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Did they not get the last part? Like, were they listening all the way through? You know how when somebody's talking and they say something as jarring like, I'm dying? Then, like, you don't hear anything else that happens after that? Because this is your dear friend or your, in this case, your master, your rabbi, your lord. He says, I'm going to get killed. And then you don't hear anything else. Luke 9, verse 22. And he, Jesus, said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Are you sensing a theme here? John chapter 2. Now this is way early. In the book, Jesus begins hinting at it even early on, a little cloak and dagger, a little metaphorical, but unmistakable. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They figured out later that the temple he was referring to was his body. Matthew 16, 4. This is what Jesus said. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. You're going, okay, Bible stories 101, vacation, Bible school of Jonah. Let me think. That was Jonah and the big fish. He was in the belly of the fish for how long was it? Oh, three days. What is Jesus saying? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm going to be in the earth. This is the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus said this kind of stuff so often that even his enemies, his detractors, started to use it against him. During his mock trial, they got some witnesses to come forth and testify. And this is what the witnesses said in Matthew 27, verse 63. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Okay. So everybody knew that Jesus said something about rising again. They didn't quite understand it because, you know, Jesus told stories. And he was always using figurative language. We never know when he's literal or when he's figurative. We have no idea because we're stupid. We don't have the Holy Spirit yet, and we don't know the end of the story. So we've got to come and cut him a break. But reason number one that you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead is that he said it was going to happen over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again for three years. 
He knew he had come to die. Number two. This is the big one. The tomb was empty on Easter. Nobody denies the fact that the tomb was empty on Easter, right? Jesus' enemies, Jesus' friends, people who didn't care. Where's the body? That's the big question. There's theories out there, and some of the theories say, well, Jesus' foes stole the body. His enemies stole the body. Now, here's the deal. They knew this is a possibility, right? If they knew this was going to happen or that it might happen, and if they did steal the body, if his foes took the body so that nobody else could have it, then all they had to do to stop this new religion from taking root and flourishing was to produce the body. I mean, if the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, if the Jewish establishment had wanted to quell this religious uprising, all they had to do was say, we got the body right here, he's dead. If the Romans wanted to stop it, all they had to do was say, you know what, we have him. He's rotting and decomposing. Back behind the barracks. They could have said anything they wanted to and produced the body and Christianity would have been over. But his foes didn't do that, so we're guessing they didn't have the body. All right, tomb's empty. Maybe his friend stole the body. This is an early rumor. Is it probable? <clears throat> the question becomes one of logic, really. Okay. Since we're told in many sources there was a Roman imperial guard around the tomb. Could the disciples have gotten through? Like, these weren't your local police, right? These weren't the guys who were overweight and out of shape and eating donuts at 12 o'clock at Dunkin' Donuts. These are not those guys. These are like the army rangers who were around the tomb. These are the forces that have conquered all of the known world. If they shirk in their duties, if they fail in their responsibilities, they can face death. That's how serious they are about their jobs. You didn't mess with Romans' soldiers. You just didn't. What's the likelihood that fishermen tax collectors, etc., ladies could go against an armed Roman guard. It's like nil to zip that that could have happened. All right, there's another theory that says, well, the reason the tomb was empty is because Jesus never really died. He just kind of swooned. He passed out. Going, well, yeah, after being tortured, beaten on a cross for six hours, you know, spear stuck in your heart. I can see somebody, like, not showing signs of life. I mean, again, we're in a culture that knows death, so they know what's going on. And, and uh, here's, here's the weird part of this theory, is that somehow Jesus 
is revived inside the, you know, airless tomb with no light and summons his superhuman strength then, although, you know, he's weak from loss of blood and crucifixion and stuff, to, uh, to then somehow roll away the stone that one person can't move. I mean, it's just illogical, right? It's just illogical. The swoon theory is ridiculous. I think that the most obvious, simplest reason that the tomb was empty was that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and the God. Just boom. Overcame the guards, rolled the stone away, reanimated his body. I mean, as crazy as that sounds, why else would the tomb have been empty? Reason number three. This one's one you don't hear very much. The testimony of women. The presence of women at the tomb is strong evidence that the biblical record is true. Women had virtually no credibility in uh, first century Palestine at all. I mean, they couldn't even testify in a court of law. If a guy was caught committing a crime and only women saw him, he could not be convicted. He would get away scot-free because a woman's testimony was not even accepted in legal matters. Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century A.D., was highly antagonistic to Christianity, and he wrote a number of uh, works arguing against the faith. One of the arguments that he liked the most went like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know women are hysterical. And many of Celsus' readers agreed. For them, that was a major problem. Now, it presents a couple layers of problems. If you're trying to make up a new religion, you're just trying to create this thing from scratch, you wouldn't have women be the first witnesses, right? Because that just wasn't valid. Second of all, you make the men who are leading the, mo the movement look really, really bad. Because they're not at the tomb, they're running away, they're hiding, and the ladies are the ones who come and say, he's risen from the dead, and then the guy goes, oh yeah, right, okay, good, great. So they look like doofuses. The fact that Christianity actually tells the story the way it is and that they do look like doofuses is proof, perhaps, that Christianity might be true. And that the resurrection really happened. Reason number four. The disciples were transformed from Freddy cats to martyrs. Now, this one has always, always, always intrigued me. I mean, his followers are so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that not only did they tell everyone and travel great distances and write huge works to proclaim the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they brave all kinds of torture and death 
because they will not stop talking about it. Back when I was a kid, there were these road signs, like when I was real little. There were these road signs that would, as you went down the highway, they had these little signs. They were, they were Burma shave ads, and they would be like this little poem, this little verse cut up into pieces. You come by, and the first sign would say something like, in this world, you go about a mile more, and you see another little sign that would say, of toil and sin, go another mile, there would be another sign, your head grows bald, keep going, but not your chin. Next line, Burma shave, right? So I'm thinking, <clears throat> you know, I don't know why this struck me. I thought, I can do that about the resurrection. This is the way my little ditty went about the resurrection. If I were Peter, James, or John, and it was all a hoax, I don't think I'd have died for what I knew was just a joke. Permashave. Thank you. My entry in the next slam right there. People don't usually die for a cause they know is a lie. Right now, people will die for a cause they think is true, but in actuality, it's false. But in this case, these guys know what dead looks like, and they know what alive looks like, and that just doesn't apply to the disciples. We are told of Peter, the apostle, being crucified upside down because he refused to stop saying that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. James is killed. We're told that John is boiled with hot oil and left to die on the island of Patmos as an exile. And he would not stop saying that Jesus was alive. That's reason number four. Reason number five, the conversion of Jesus' brothers and sisters and of the apostle Paul supports the truth of the resurrection. The conversion of Jesus' own brothers and sisters and of the apostle Paul supports the truth of the resurrection. Now, um, with deference to my Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters who do not believe that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, that Mary and Joseph were childless, um, you can skip this one, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I do believe that the Gospels are fairly clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, uh, and uh, that um, at, on a couple occasions, they were totally embarrassed of him. Like Mary came with her sons when Jesus is preaching and tries to get him and take him home because they're going, our kid has gone crazy, he's out running around the countryside pretending to be a rabbi, you know, and teaching people. And we hear he's like doing these strange things. We don't know what he's gotten himself involved in, but they're trying to get him off of the streets. This happens a couple times in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus had to feel really, really bad, right? Because his own family does not believe in him. And that was really a, a shame in the ancient world if a rabbi's own family didn't think he was really worth it. Because they were the closest ones to him. 
Now, the fact that after his resurrection, his family becomes believers, I think, is a reason to believe that the resurrection actually happened. James, his younger brother, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James. Now, imagine being James and growing up with Jesus as an older brother. I mean, you ever had an older brother who was like the golden child? Always did everything right. Imagine having Jesus as an older brother. You can just see Mary coming up to James and going, Oh, James, James, James. Why do you do this to us? Why do you treat your father and I so? Why can't you be more like Jesus? You would grow up having an axe to grind with your big brother, the perfect one. Anybody, can, anybody here like an older brother or sister like that you can relate to me? You know what I'm saying? I mean, the fact that James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem is amazing. As a matter of fact, James, according to church history, James was martyred, still proclaiming Jesus as Lord, by being thrown from the roof of the temple. And as he lay dying, clinging to life, they came and they stoned him. But he would not recant that his brother was Lord and Messiah. And then there's the Apostle Paul. This guy is a reason all by himself. The Apostle Paul tried to stop Christianity as it was getting going. He was arresting Christians, putting them in jail. He was an accessory to the murder of Christians because he thought they were a blasphemy and they needed to be wiped out before they destroyed Judaism. Now, if you know devout Jews, the Apostle Paul is like the most devout Jew you know times a hundred. This guy was fanatical. And the fact that he made a 180-degree turnaround and then becomes the foremost evangelist for the Christian faith in the ancient world is nothing short of a miracle that points to the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because it took something like Jesus appearing to Paul on the road, knocking him off his horse, blinding him for three days, for Paul to convert and begin his trek as a follower of Jesus, which is why, as we read earlier, he considers himself the least of all the apostles, one abnormally born, because he was a jerk. He was a deadly jerk. People did not want to meet him after his conversion. They didn't believe it. Christians are going, like James going, I don't know, do I want to meet him really seriously? Like, I mean, I might be a martyr, but... No sense in rushing that. So other people had to come and say, no, really, seriously, he's done a turnaround. He's seen Jesus. This kind of leads to the next argument 
Number six, the sheer existence of a thriving, empire-conquering, early Christian church supports the truth of the resurrection claim. These are John Piper's words, not mine. I've taken freely from guys like John Piper and Tim Keller and Dr. Doug Grotheis and a variety of uh, other sources that I've read over the last, you know, 40 years. To me, this is like apologetics 101. Like, I figure, like, you guys all know this. Uh, but I realized I'd never gone over it in the 13 years we've had scum of the earth, so I decided that tonight we would go through the very basic reasons why you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the sheer existence of a thriving, empire-conquering early church supports the truth of a resurrection claim. Now, here's a fact. In the decades before Jesus... And in the decades after Jesus, there were dozens of men who claimed to be the Messiah. Dozens. There was an insurrection, you know, religious fervor, I'm sure, every other month. If you're Pontius Pilate, you hate being assigned to Jerusalem. Because those people will not stop with a religious fanaticism. They were crucifying people left and right. Because there were so many uprisings against Rome. If you read Josephus, the historian, uh, you'll find out it did, doesn't matter, whatever. I mean, it, they would have a riot uh, because Caesar brought in Roman standards that had an image of Caesar on them. Like they took these all over the world, right? That they conquered. But they bring them into Jerusalem and uh, the Jews riot. Because it's a graven image. You can't bring that into our city. Every one of those messianic rebellions was crushed. Its leaders were crucified and buried, and you never heard a word about them ever again. Except for this pesky Jesus character who will not stay dead. People keep saying he's alive. They tell their friends. They tell their families. They die proclaiming that Jesus is alive. They will not stop. Generation after generation after generation until 300 years later, the Roman Empire is mostly Christian. Constantine was the emperor then, and he decided he had better make Christianity legal when his mother became a Christian. In 300 years, the church had gone from zero to 100 miles an hour. Taking over the empire. You know that uh, Constantine called the first council of Christian leaders ever in the history of the world. And you know, we just got done having the election of the new pope, Francesco. Sounds like a great guy. But, you know, they have all this pomp and circumstance, right? The red robes and the gold and the processions and all that kind of stuff. It's really kind of cool. The first gathering of bishops and pastors was not like that at all. 
Because these guys had been through persecution. They came without legs and without arms and blinded in one eye and maimed in all sorts of areas with scars from years of persecution. And now they were being picked up in royal chariots because of the edict of Constantine to finally have a conference of all the bishops in the world. Of all those messianic movements, what made the Christian faith different? The church spread on the power of the testimony that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that God had thus made him both Lord and Christ. There are a lot of reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to end with this one. These are only seven. The witness of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. The witness of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people right here. The New Testament teaches that God sends his Holy Spirit to glorify his son Jesus. Jesus said this in John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. A saving knowledge of Jesus Christ brings with it an assurance that you are not worshiping a dead Savior. I remember uh, my own search for God. started when I was a junior in high school. I was about uh, 17, 18 years old. I had reasons for wanting to search out the truth of the Scriptures. As a lot of you know, I had things I wanted to do, which according to my Sunday school upbringing, were not what God wanted me to do, right? Like, they would get me in trouble if there really was a God. So, very logically, I thought, well, then I will check out Christianity to make sure it's true on an adult level, and if it's not true, then I'll throw it out and do whatever the hell I want. And if it is true, then maybe I won't go out and do these things that displease God. And so I started a two-year search. You know, I had all the questions that people normally have. What about the folks you've never heard? What about the problem of evil in a fallen world when there's a good God? I had all those kinds of questions. But the main thing was, I didn't believe that Jesus was alive. Really, seriously. I didn't see how, I thought, I, I don't think he's alive. I think he was a good guy, who said a lot of wonderful things, and got crucified because he was threatening the system. I will never forget the moment of my conversion. I won't tell you about it in detail, but I'll tell you this. A minute before, I wasn't sure that Jesus had risen from the dead. And immediately afterwards, I knew that he was alive. I knew that he wasn't dead. I knew that he was present in some kind of supernatural way that I couldn't quite explain outside of space, outside of time. 
All my questions, a lot of them were still there, but they didn't matter as much because the Holy Spirit had come inside of me, and now I had an internal assurance that Jesus was alive. I want to ask you, if you don't believe that Jesus is alive, then why are you here? I wouldn't be here if I were you. Why waste your time? Go off and do something a lot more fun. But if Jesus is alive and you know it, church becomes extremely important. A saving knowledge of Christ crucified and risen is not merely the result of reasoning out facts of history. It's the result of a spiritual illumination to see those facts are what they really are. A revelation of the truth and glory of God in the face of Christ, who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm going to close with the story of two different guys. The first is a guy named Dr. Frank Morrison, who was a lawyer in the 1930s. He decided uh, that he was going to use all of his knowledge of the legal system and of compiling evidence and what's admissible, what's not admissible, to prove that Christianity was not true. And so he began this course of study to prove that Christianity was not true. Because he understood what C.S. Lewis said way back at the beginning one must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So, Frank Morrison begins to write this book. And somewhere in the middle of his research, he falls to his knees and asks Jesus Christ to come into his life. The first chapter of the book he did write was called The Book That Refused to Be Written. The name of that book was Who Moved the Stone? There was another guy, much, much later, back in the 1980s, an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune with a law background. And he went on a quest to find out whether or not Christianity was real. Interesting little sidelight. One of the things he did was to fly to Denver, Colorado, to talk to one guy who knew whether or not the scriptures really were reliable or not. That was Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Craig Blomberg has a hand and what happened to Lee Strobel. I just want you to watch a two-minute video. Go ahead. For most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. In my background's in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical person. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day my wife came up to me, she had been agnostic, and she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things up. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try if I could get her out of this cult that she got involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it, that forgiveness is a free gift, and that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there's any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim stream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time. It's a way that as I look back, I can't imagine staying in the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel went on to write the book, A Case for Christ. And uh, I think there's even a smaller version available called The Case for Easter. If you don't want to read his magnum opus, you can read the kind of a bridge version in A Case for Easter. So Jesus rose from the dead just as he told us that he would. Now, after a criminal does his time in jail and so fully satisfies the sentence given, the law has no more claim on him, and he walks out a free man. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. That was an infinite sentence. But he must have satisfied it fully, because on Easter Sunday, he walked out of the tomb a free man risen from the dead, never to taste death again, but rather to lead all those who would believe in him into a resurrection, not just for life on this planet, but for eternity. My prayer for you, is that you would never, ever see the Christianity, the resurrection, as something of moderate importance in your life or the life of the planet. That you would understand that it is an event of infinite importance 
not just because it's true, but because God is calling you to himself to live with him forever and ever. Not just here on this planet, but in a place where there is no pain or sorrow or suffering or death where we will live as resurrected beings alongside of Jesus Christ in a perfect place with perfected people forever and ever. If you don't know Jesus, I beg you to take the truths of the resurrection and apply them to your life. Ask Jesus to come in to be your Lord, to be your Master, And follow him because it's true what they say. Jesus rose from the dead. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the truth of his resurrection. be ever more weighty on our minds until we either can't sleep at all or sleep the most peaceful sleep we have ever slept because we acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, risen indeed. Amen.